Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, and please stand with me. I want to draw your attention to the first four verses of Hebrews 1 today. This is God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the fact that you have spoken. Lord, thank you for, for speaking your word Thank you, Lord, for giving us your truth. Lord, I pray today that you would comfort your people. I pray, Lord, that you would call people to to faith and repentance. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. For your glory, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Hebrews chapter 1 helps you get Christmas right. It helps you get New Year's right. It helps you get life right. You think about Christmas, you get past all the trappings and wrappings and decorations, the celebrations, the expectation of gifts, the giving of gifts. You get past the aftermath, that's where we're at now, we're in the middle between Christmas and New Year's. You get past the aftermath, the letdown, the cleanup, the unmet expectations and gift returns, of course. And you get past all the things that we prop up Christmas with, and what do you have? Hebrews 1 helps you get Christmas right. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 tells us that after Jesus died for sins, he sat down. This is, this is a big deal. He was resurrected and exalted, and then he, he sat down. What, what does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus reigns. He is reigning as king, and he's going to reign forever. And the only thing for us to do is to worship this king now while we have time. The world gets Christmas wrong. It's easy to see. They leave Jesus out of the picture. But it is so easy for professing believers to do the same thing. To get tripped up on barriers to worshiping the king at a time when we remember his birth. You see, you can't escape the preeminence of Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. It speaks very clearly of his absolute preeminence as God, his absolute sufficiency as Savior 
and his absolute greatness as the reigning king. In fact, this might be the most brief and beautiful description of Christ in all of Scripture. You want to get Christ right? You want to get Christmas right? You want to get New Year's right? You want to get your life right? Then grasp what first, what first is being said at the very beginning of Hebrews. Past two weeks, we've been focusing on the cradle, the cross, and the crown, the glory of Christ's life. We've been in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, we saw the glory of his life. Verses 10 through 18, the glory of his death. And now today, in Hebrews 1, the glory of his resurrection. The writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians that are experiencing trouble. They've heard that Jesus will return soon. They've heard the gospel message. They've believed it, and they hear the imminent return of Christ, and Christ hasn't returned yet, and times are getting tough, and they're starting to doubt. These persecuted Christians are tempted to wonder, is it worth it to follow Jesus? You may have been tempted to wonder that. Going through tough times, you're going through to hard Persecutions or, or difficult relational issues or, or whatever you're, feeling, you're going through in life and you might be tempted to say, is it, worth, is it worth it to follow Jesus? They were depressed, they were doubting, and they were tempted to believe lies. You might be too. You might be depressed, you might be doubting, you might be tempted to believe lies. Lies right now are swirling around us like a tornado. We, we need the truth more than ever today. We need the truth. These verses tell us very simply, number one, that Jesus is God. Number two, that that Jesus died for sin. And number three, that he reigns as king. He reigns in glory. You want to get Christmas right, you need to know its meaning. The meaning of Christmas and really the Christian faith is this. God became man. Born in Bethlehem to live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death, and then rise to reign in sovereign glory forever. Hebrews 1 speaks of this. Hebrews 1 gives us Jesus as God, Jesus who died for sin, and Jesus who reigns in glory. First, Jesus is God. We need to look at the deity of Christ, the Godhood of Christ. The writer begins like this, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he's going to give this beautiful, brief picture of Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He starts by pointing them back and reminding them that God has spoken. And he is reminding them that he has spoken in many times and in many ways. What is he referring to? He is referring to the entire Old Testament. He is referring to all 39 books of the Old Testament written over 1,800 years from Job to Nehemiah, from 2200 B.C. to 400 B.C. He is saying that God had spoken in, in many ways and, and in, in many times over, over many places and peoples and cultures and situations. He's done so in communicating through angels and visions and types and symbols and stories and prose and poetry. And it's 100% the revelation of God to mankind. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable 
is useful for teaching and correction and reproof and training in righteousness. So verse 1 tells us that God progressively revealed his purposes. He did so through the prophets. You see it in all 39 books of the Old Testament. But verse 2 tells us something that we need today. We need to remember this. We need to grasp it. He says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, by his son. In these last days. The Jews understood the last days to be the time when Messiah would come. And since he has come, it has been the last days. Ever since Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it has been the last days. We're living in that in-between time. And Christ will return, but, but we also are tempted to wonder, when's it going to happen? Is it really going to happen? And James tells us, be patient. Be patient. The, the coming of the Lord is near. It's imminent. It, it's, it's going to happen. It's at hand. So the writer is saying, in times past, God spoke through the prophets. Very clearly, when he spoke through the prophets, he spoke of his salvation program, his redemption program, his plan. First Peter 1 tells us that the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to, to be given to believers made very careful search and inquiry. They wanted to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted, when, when the Spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, the exaltation of Christ. But beginning with Messiah's birth, God spoke through Jesus. Before he spoke through his prophets, Christ wasn't on earth yet, but as soon as Christ landed on earth, God spoke through Jesus exclusively you can call jesus god's last word first peter 1 says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and he was made manifest in these last days in these last times for your sake those who are believers who through him are believers in god through christ are believers in god who raised him from the dead and gave him glory rejoice in his resurrection he raised him from the dead and gave him glory. The writer of Hebrews continues talking of the son now. He, he talks of his absolute power as God. Verse two says he was appointed heir of all things. Appointed heir of all things. And through whom, through Christ, he also created the world. He is the heir. What does that mean? It means that everything will come under the son's control. Under Christ's control. His inheritance is sovereign authority that God the Father has given him as the firstborn. Romans 8, 29 tells us, those whom he, pre, whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. There's your older brother Jesus. There's your sibling Jesus. And it speaks of, of the prominence of his position and title, not order of time. He wasn't the first person born on earth. We know that. He has the position of sovereignty. He is the firstborn. He is set apart for God's service. He is preeminent. This is what the writer of Hebrews is, is saying right off the bat. Psalm 89, 27, I will make him the firstborn. The highest of the kings of the earth. And then through whom he created the world, 
John 1 tells us that all things came into being by him. So time and space and matter and energy, the universe and everything that makes it function came from Jesus. Romans eleven thirty six tells us from him and through him and to him are all things. Colossians 1.16 says, By him, by Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, created through him and for him. The writer also tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's doing that right now. Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. The universe is continually sustained by the Son's powerful word. One word from him and all hell would break loose. Colossians 1.17 says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And it doesn't just mean that he's holding on to everything so everything doesn't fall apart. It means that he is directing all things that he is holding on to towards God's sovereign purposes. He keeps things alive and keeps things rolling along to their intended conclusion. The absolute deity of Christ is being shown and the writer goes on, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. You go to a wedding and you see a bride and you say, wow, she's radiant. She's glowing. Here, radiance means brightness, a light. It's the idea of shining a light, like a lighthouse. But Jesus is not reflecting God's glory. He is the glory. He is the Shekinah glory of God. He is God and he radiates his own essential glory. That's why in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I'm the Shekinah glory of God. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Whoever believes in me will have the light of life. You see Jesus, you've seen the glory of God. You see Jesus by faith, you've seen the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that God has shown in the hearts of believers to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. Verse 3 says he's the exact imprint, the exact image of his nature. And he's not a copy. It's the idea of if you were engraving on wood or on metal or branding a cowhide or, or stamping an image into a coin. Maybe you're into old typewriters and it, it's, it's the idea of, of the exact letter being represented, the character. The sun is the perfect imprint, the exact representation of the nature and essence of God. He is God. Jesus said in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9 says in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when Mary was holding the baby, you know, Mary, did you know that your, your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? Did, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? He's reigning now. But the sleeping child that she held, the great 
I am. Jesus said it. Now we're living in a time where it's very popular to say that Muslims worship the same God Christians do. Hebrews 1 blows that to smithereens. Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. And for that matter, either do Jews and Christians. Now what you can say is they have a similar starting point. But the Muslims say that if you, if you worship Jesus, you're blaspheming. So do the Jews. You have to lose the gospel to believe that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Jesus is always the stumbling block for those who reject him. Always. Stone of stumbling, rock of offense. And by the way, this, is a, this means something right now. There, there, this is a controversy that's going on in our, in our society now that, that really matters. There was a statement made by a professor at an evangelical Christian college, and it became a flashpoint for this controversy that actually really matters. Now, there is tons of useless info in the world right now. You can Google it. You can find a list of the 50 most useless things you should know. This professor at this university was explaining why she was intending to wear a traditional Muslim hajib over the holiday season to, to show solidarity with her Muslim brothers and sisters. She asserted that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. You have to ask the question, is that true? A lot of Christians are saying it is. I like how Albert, Mo Albert Moeller put it. The answer to that question depends upon a distinctly Christian and clearly biblical answer to yet another question. Can anyone truly worship the Father while rejecting the Son? The Christian's answer to that question has to follow the example of Jesus himself. Jesus himself settled the question in the New Testament when he was responding to Jewish leaders who had confronted him after he said, I am the light of the world. After he said, I am the Shekinah glory of God. They denied him and Jesus said, if you knew me, you would know my father also. Later in that very same chapter, Jesus uses some of the strongest language of his entire earthly ministry in stating very clearly to deny him is to deny the Father. You're not worshiping the one true God if you are not worshiping him through Jesus Christ. If you have not come to the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said it very clearly. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. Christians worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and no other God. We know the Father through the Son, and it is only because of the Son's substitutionary atonement at the cross that sin is avail that, that, that salvation is available to anyone. He died for sin at the cross, and that is the only reason Salvation is available to you and I. Salvation comes to those who confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from where? The dead. Glory in his resurrection. Glory in his resurrection. Don't believe the lies. The New Testament 
gives 0% margin for misunderstanding this. To deny the Son is to deny the Father. 1 John 2, 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You tell that truth, you get labeled a hater, right? The matchless word of God, though, sets the record straight. Political correctness doesn't matter. Biblical correctness matters. Biblical accuracy matters. Jesus made the world. He is the only way for us to know God. He is our perfect high priest. Which leads us to the second thing that the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Jesus died for sin. Jesus died for sin. Five short words in our English Bibles tell us that. The writer of Hebrews takes his entire life of Jesus and, and just condenses it down to five words. He, he refers to only one thing that Jesus did while he was here. Made purification for sins. After making purification for sins. Refers to only one thing that Jesus did. Paul said it. It's a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to earth to save sinners. He thought he was the worst. You should consider yourself the worst when you see your sin in light of Christ. We see the absolute sufficiency of Christ as Savior here. Titus 2.14 tells us that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness is living like your God. Lawlessness is acting as if you know better than God. Lawlessness is doing your own thing. And he, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He left the glory of heaven for the suffering of death on earth. As Hebrews 2.9 tells us, he tasted death for everyone. He went through death in its fullest for all who will believe. Here is Jesus who owned everything, made everything, and you have no record of him owning anything on earth. He who was rich for our sakes became poor. Here's Jesus who made the world and who, who sustains the world by his word, who was absolute strength becoming weak for us. Here's Jesus who dwelt in sinless glory, coming to dwell among sin and shame, to bear our sin and shame. Here's the total preeminence of Jesus as God and his total sufficiency as the only Savior. He has to be God in order to save us. Why does Jesus have to be God in order to save us? Because God is righteous. He will not allow sin in his presence. God punishes lawlessness and he punishes lawlessness with righteousness. There was an infinite punishment to be taken. The infinite punishment for sin. And the only one who could pay the infinite sacrifice, the infinite value, is, is the one who is of infinite value. King James, when 
It translated this verse uh, and it made purification for sins. It said, by himself made purification for sin. That's not in the original, by himself, but it captures the meaning. God did this by himself. God did this by himself. He made purification for sins. He purged the sins. He, he purified. He eliminated the power and penalty of sin. You know, you get a, a stain on your clothes or on something and you, you just search all over the place for what will take this stain off, right? Is it water? Is it baking soda? Is it soda water? What is it? I don't know. You can tell me later, but here's the deal. Jesus is the ultimate stain remover. We had a stain on our soul that couldn't be removed by anything but the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. In chapter 9 in Hebrews tells us this when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, a, of defiled people with ashes of a cow sanctified for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your souls? Cleanse you from sin that you can't take out of your own life. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, sinless, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? After he made purification of sins, he sat down. Romans 8 tells us God did what the law could not do. Sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. That's why when Jesus said in John 6 I am the bread of life he was saying there's no way to be saved except through me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It is pointing to his total preeminence as God and his total sufficiency as savior which leads us to his total worthiness to reign. He is reigning right now in heaven. Jesus reigns in heaven. He's absolutely sovereign. It says that he sat down after he made purification of sins at the cross, after he substituted himself in the place of lost sinners, he sat down. So now you, you actually have the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation all wrapped up into to one phrase. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, he sat down as a victorious, conquering savior, not as a defeated martyr. When I was a child, I was told Bible stories in Sunday school at a church that didn't preach the gospel. And, and, and I remember hearing the stories, and I remember thinking distinctly, and, and as it was kind of presented this way, I hope that, that this plan doesn't get foiled. I hope that Jesus makes it. It's like when you watch a movie and you're thinking, oh no, the end is in doubt, and then you realize it's based on a true story. The end is never in doubt in this movie. See, the end is not in doubt on this. He is fully sovereign. He was, he was foreordained and predestined to die. All those who believe 
are, have their, their names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says that Jesus was delivered according to the foreknowledge and and planned the predestined plan of God and was crucified and was killed by the hands of lawless men and God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for death to hold him it was not possible for death to hold the one who created life and who is life in and of himself that's why we're told in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Glory in his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation. He is at the right hand. Do we have any lefties here today, by the way? Any lefties? Okay, don't feel bad about this. I'm gonna say something that's gonna make you feel bad. He's at the right hand. I have five kids, and when one of my children, beautiful, beautiful Savannah, started using her left hand, I started putting everything in her right hand because I'm just warped. I love the fact that she's a lefty, but here's what, what Jesus did. He sat down, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that mean, the right hand? Is it the best hand? The right hand biblically speaking, is the place of authority and honor and power. Hebrews 1.13 says, Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Romans 8.34 tells us, Who is there to condemn us in Christ? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, glory in his resurrection, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What's Jesus doing right now? He is, he is seated at the right hand of God and he is keeping you saved if you're a believer. He is praying for you. He is protecting you. He is keeping you secure in him for eternity. Don't doubt your salvation, believer. Don't doubt if God really meant what he said when he said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 1 Peter 3.22 says that Jesus went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. The right hand of the majesty. Christ is on the throne of God because he is God and he's the only savior and he rules as sovereign Lord. You remember back to the Old Testament, the the ongoing sacrifices needed to deal with the people's sins, it, it couldn't, couldn't cleanse them forever. Hebrews 10 tells us the law was a shadow of the good things to come, not the true form of the reality. It could never, by the same sacrifices, continually offered every year, make perfect those who drew near. They're coming every year. The priest goes into the holy place once a year, covered in the blood of animals to make atonement for the people, and it only lasted for a while. It could not, it could not forgive them. Otherwise, they would have stopped making those sacrifices because they would have been cleansed once for all. They wouldn't have any consciousness of sins. Think about your life. If you're a believer, think about your life before you were a believer. 
All the time you were trying to work your way into God's favor. You were trying to be good enough because you had a weight of sin. You had a consciousness of sin, whether you would admit it or not. Before I was a believer, I wouldn't say I'm a sinner. I would have punched you in the nose if you told me I was a sinner. But I knew, I knew there was something wrong. And I couldn't take care of it. And I was trying and trying and trying. And here in the Old Testament system, they, they, they weren't cleansed forever. And so they still had consciousness of sins. In fact, it says in those sacrifices, Hebrews 10.3, there is a reminder of sins every year. Think about you before you became a believer, if you're a believer. You were always getting reminded of how far short you fell from God's glorious ideal there's a reminder of sins every year there's a remembrance of sins every year but when you're when you're dead in sin that's all you've got to remember but when you are alive in christ you are now instructed to remember jesus christ risen from the dead in fact the same greek word for remember the reminder of sins in hebrews 10 3 is the same word jesus uses when he instituted the lord's table and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me don't remember your sins any longer remember me this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me same word so what's the big deal here? The big deal is this. The high priest that went in every year to the holy place never sat down. And the high priest never sat down because his work was never finished. His work was never over. It was continual. Hebrews 10 tells us every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Just like you, trying so hard to take away your own sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Because by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There are people cursing God left and right today. But God will not be mocked forever. There will be a day. Revelation 5.13 says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Hebrews 1 foretells us that Jesus became much more superior to angels because the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It says he, he became better than angels. That's a change of position, not of existence. The Son eternally existed, but for a while he was made lower than the angels when he became man. But then he died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and was exalted to the highest position by virtue of his finished work on the cross. He laid aside his privileges as God, kenosis theory, but he never lost it. He never gave it up. He always had it. He laid it aside. 
And so angels are under him. Angels were created to do God's will and serve him. The Jews thought angels were the highest next to God, and they looked at Jesus and said, well, you're a man, and so you must be lower than angels. The Son of God is superior to angels, more excellent name. His name is Lord, and no one has that title except Jesus. Sovereign Lord, that's Jesus. We can't read Philippians 2, 9 through 11 often enough, if you ask me. God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is crowned. Jesus is reigning now. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To us, a child is born, Isaiah prophesied. To us, a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He reigns forever to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and justice from this time forth and forever, and the zeal of God will do it. Revelation 19, there's a scene of heaven being opened, and there's a white horse, and there's someone sitting on the white horse, and that person on the white horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes, it says, are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Do you know what a diadem is? What's a diadem? It's a crown. On his head are many crowns. I don't know why they just didn't say that. Diadems. On his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Revelation 22, Jesus himself speaks. He says, I, Jesus, am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He rules now, so live under his rule. He's reigning now, and he's going to reign forever, so we need to worship him now. Jesus came to receive worship. The wise men came to worship him. Jesus is the one we're to worship today. Well, how do we worship him now? In our last few moments, I, I want to bring out some, some ideas about how we can worship him now, some, some applications, some some ideas behind this passage. How do you worship him now? He's, he's reigning. He's, he's God. He's our Savior. He's, he's the only king. How do you worship him now? Number one, seek him. Seek him all the time. Seek him regularly with his people. 
with his people. The wise men came from the east. They were Gentiles, and they came to worship Jesus. And God, God led the wise men to Bethlehem by means of a star. Jesus himself is our bright and morning star, the radiance of the glory of God. And by his word and by his spirit, he draws lost sinners to himself. You want to seek him regularly with his people? You got to be one of his people. And you can't go alone. You can't go solo. If you're not a believer today, seek the Lord while he may be found. You're alive. Your heart is beating. The clock is ticking. Call upon him while he is near. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The gospel is very clear. Jesus is absolutely the only one living for or dying for. In him alone is life. Seek him regularly with his people. Acknowledge his deity with his family. I base that on Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And that's not just a cool name for a fantasy football team the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven what are we talking about here we're talking about the assembly of jesus who is the firstborn the assembly whose names are enrolled in heaven whose names are in the lamb's book of life the church so seek him regularly with his people You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Seek him regularly. Acknowledge his deity with the church. And then, number two, daily find your joy in him as you journey to him. Daily find your joy in Christ as you journey to Christ. If you are a believer, you are journeying to Christ. You're not just living here for a while and trying to enjoy things and get through trouble as as best you can and get to heaven by the skin of your teeth. You are in Christ forever. Therefore, you are journeying to Christ. We say when when a brother or a sister in Christ dies, we say they went to Jesus. God took them home to Jesus. I had a privilege the other day on, on Christmas Eve of being with a, a dear brother in Christ who, who passed on Christmas Day. And when I saw him, the last thing I said to him was, I'll see you again. I'll see you again. You nodded. I'll see you again. That's our hope in Christ. Find your joy in him every day as you journey to him. He endured the cross for your joy. By grace you are saved through faith. Rejoice in the journey as God takes you to him. There's going to be a lot of things that you will notice every day competing for your attention. I like how C.S. Lewis put it. If you find in yourself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. Behold the Lamb who takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the light and life of men. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. Glory in his life. God eternal humbled to the grave. 
now exalted. And lastly, I'll say this. You want to worship Jesus? You need to worship Jesus. How do you do that? By continually offering everything you have to him who gave you everything. Continually offer all to the king who sits on the throne and who gave you everything in mercy. Do not believe the lie that it's not worth it to worship Jesus wholeheartedly. Isaiah 40 says, God says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. Uneven ground will become level. Rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That glory was revealed in Christ. It was the radiance. The radiance of God. All flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has spoken tenderly to us in Christ. John the Baptist called out in the wilderness to prepare for the coming king. In his perfect time, God sent forth his son to earth. And the people who dwelt in darkness saw a great light because in Christ, the glory of God is revealed. How do we know it's true? You who are doubting, you who are downcast, you who are depressed, how do you know it is true? Isaiah gives us the answer, gives us the reason for our confidence in this supreme truth. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The mouth of God has spoken it. That that one sentence just sums up all our hopes. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Your knowledge of the gospel is not based on guesswork. It's, It's based on the revealed word of God. You know the gospel because God has spoken it. And a voice cries out, Isaiah 40 says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? And all flesh is grass. It's beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. We're all battling our mortality. Every one of us is going to die. Buy another condolence card. The grass withers The flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of our God stands forever. If you are saved, it's only because God has spoken to us in Christ. If you're not saved, you're fried (laughs) unless you know Jesus. You should have absolute, absolute confidence if you're a believer. You should have absolute confidence in God's promises because you have absolute confidence in the word of God. Trusting Christ, the incarnate word, full of grace and truth. From the beginning he was God, is God, he reigns forever. Good news of great joy, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening? Lord God, thank you that we can remember the cradle and the cross and the crown, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, that we can glory in Christ's resurrection. 
Lord, we glory in your resurrection, in your exalted position as God, in your substitutionary work as Savior, in your, in your reign forever as sovereign King. Lord, may we not get Christmas and New Year's and life wrong. May we get it right because you are speaking to us through your Son. May we listen. For your glory in Christ's name, amen.